Hello, dear listeners. Uh, it's Sivis Pachim here, your podcast about transatlantic security and American foreign policy. And today we discuss a couple of topics. So we start with discussion of Open Skies Treaty, a um, very crucial arms control treaty, and we analyze what the withdrawal, American withdrawal from this treaty means for the treaty itself. And then we discuss um, the Common Relief Fund in the European Union and significance for the integration of European Union. And we end with discussion of assertive Chinese policy in the sphere of influence. So have fun and enjoy the episode. So hello everyone. Hello. And today we are ready to discuss a lot of topics. Recent developments, pretty important. Yeah. And I guess we start with uh, the American decision to withdraw from Open Skies Treaty. Mm-hmm. A pretty milestone in the sphere of arms control. Exactly. So I guess let's just discuss briefly what why it's important. So, I mean, Open Skies Treaty is just a treaty that allows surveillance, uh, aerial surveillance uh, over territory of signatory countries. And there, there are currently 35 countries that signed to this treaty, um, particularly, I mean, mainly located in Europe, but not only, you know, Canada and the US. And it's a, I guess it's a big deal just because it's just a, one of the few existed, existing um, arms control treaties it basically builds uh, this confidence and trust, security trust in Europe, because it's important, you know, it's important to know the movement of your enemies' troops and just have an ability to surveil over other countries' territory. Yeah, knowledge is power, absolutely. So it's a pretty big decision. I'm not really. Uh, I mean, people discussed that this was coming for a year or something like Especially this. Especially with this administration, which likes to pull out of arrangements. Yeah, it's not it's the first arms control treaty that the US uh, withdraws. Yeah, we had the INF treaty. Yes, so pretty big development. I mean, I mean, it's I guess the hardest question now: how they're gonna save or whether they're gonna save this treaty? Because uh, as we as I already mentioned. It's not only about the US and Europe, uh, the US and Russia. But let's be honest here, the those two countries were the main like thrusts behind it, the treaty. It was basically mostly to yeah. verify each other and the other countries that joined were, you know, like a yeah. fifth wheel, I, I would but think. I, I would disagree. I would say it's mainly about Europe and Russia and you, you can check data. It's actually interesting to know how they use this treaty. And the data suggests that it's, it was mainly, I mean, the flights were mainly over Europe, mm-hmm. European territory, not over the US. And Russia used this treaty in order to surveil mainly over European countries, not over the US. But you see, the US withdrew from the treaty, mm-hmm. especially because they said that Russia violated it. Mm-hmm. Same yeah. as they with the INF treaty and various others that were yeah. violations. I mean... They they have uh, like Russian violations. What they say they basically had the special zone that they um, they they prohibited American flights over the Kaliningrad mm-hmm. over some areas of Kaliningrad and um, some uh, during some 
movement of troops. They also, I mean, what the U.S. claims that they also prohibited them from flying over them. I mean, I don't know. This, th those are not. Um, I mean, it, it can they can figure out this. So I don't think it's such a thing that really that that can um, endanger the whole treaty. Mm -hmm. And it's also important. When we talk about, you know, the U.S., for the U.S. it's pretty clear because they rely basically on satellite surveillance right now, I mean, officially. And for them, Open Sky Treaty is something like relic from the past because, I mean, both for Russia and the U.S. still they rely on satellite imagery and surveillance for them. It doesn't really make very big sense, this treaty. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, for example, when you look at Europe now, I think yeah. Europe is the one that's at the disadvantage now because if the US and let's say maybe Russia mm -hmm. would withdraw from, from this treaty, Europe would be left with no you capabilities. Know, capabilities of surveillance. I yeah. mean, they do have some satellite you know, imagery methods, but not as developed as Russia no, or the US. I mean, and that's why it's so important to keep this treaty because, uh, I mean, almost every secondary of this treaty uses its own advantage, uh, especially small countries and Baltic countries, I guess Poland, um, you know, other countries that basically have, like uh, are in very close proximity to Russia, yep. and for them it's very important to, to dislocate Russian troops and to know what they're doing there, you know, and yes, as we said, they don't have satellites, so for them it's pretty important. So far, Russia hasn't, I mean, the US announced that it's going to withdraw in six months, because that's what treaty requires, officially, uh -huh. six-month period um, after announcement. Uh, but the question is whether the Russia is going to stay in the treaty. If Russia withdraws, that it will completely make no sense to, 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 to have this treaty. Yeah, you would just have, what, European countries and Canada left? Yeah, but the question, I guess the most... The most problematic part is that may, most countries in this treaty are the part of uh, NATO. Yep. And it's hard. I mean, they're going to have this data, but Russia doesn't want now, since the US is not the, it's not the part of the treaty, they doesn't want those countries uh, to share um, this data with the US, mm -hmm. which is hard because they're in the part of the same alliance. Yeah, military alliance. And how it's going to work out, no one knows. So far, Russia indicated that they are not interested in withdrawing alliance. They're interested in saving this alliance, uh, saving not the alliance, but saving a treaty. Which I guess paints treaty. them in a better light than the US on the international scene. Yeah, I mean, the same with INF. You know, the, when the US withdrew, they said, well, we really value this INF treaty, even though, you know, when the US... Uh, sign up to this treaty in the 80s. It's actually very interesting because everyone in military command thought this is a disastrous treaty and <laughs> it benefited, highly benefited the US, not, not Russia really. Um, yeah, and the same, I guess, with the Open Skies Treaty. It's actually an American initiative. It's initiative like first proposed by Eisenhower you know, like back in the 50s and then proposed by uh, uh, Bush uh, senior, mm -hmm. and it's interesting because America made this like like managed to m make this treaty happen because of this favorable position in nineties, and now it's it's itself abandons those kind of type of treaties, uh, which goes hand in hand, you know, INF and Open Skies, it's still the same kind of period of time. Um, and it's interesting because uh, America, you, you can still say that America benefits a lot from these treaties, especially. In terms of open skies, I guess American allies benefit way more uh, 
um, then if treated like didn't exist. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I guess it's just sad to see how this the whole system of uh, arms control just crumbling apart. And yeah, the post you know post Cold War system is definitely coming apart slowly, piece by piece. And yeah. we do not know what awaits. Yeah, and as we already mentioned, now the question is whether the treaty is going to be saved or not. Basically, it relies on Russia and what they decide. But it's actually interesting that uh, European countries are very vocal supporters of this treaty. So when it's they, in their interest, as we said. Yeah, I mean, because they don't have any kind of other capabilities to have a surveillance over Russian territory, and it's important for them. Yeah. Well... Yeah, let's keep an eye on that. I mean, it basically it happened. Um, so we, uh, yes, it happened last week, and all events uh, like happened like basically so drastically, and it was a big debate among um, and you know arms control wonks, so to speak, that are really interested in these things. And let's see how it goes. Yeah. So I guess let's probably, what they mentioned, it's actually very interesting. They somehow, I mean, administration connected our Open Skies Treaty to like a new START treaty. They basically said that they need to withdraw from Open Skies Treaty to somehow to somehow create a new new START treaty, which sounds a little bit schizophrenic, uh -huh. but that's what they announced, I don't know. <laughs> Hard to grasp, I guess. Yeah, I mean, what they basically they said now they seek to extend New START treaty, which we discussed. I won't go into yeah, details. Mentioned uh, it, yeah. in previous episodes. You can check out. Um, they announced that they're interested in extending treaty for some short period of time, so not for five years, but for um, um, for just maybe six months or something like this, in order to draft a new treaty with China. And now they appointed a new. Um, um, White House, a new official, like specifically, and this official um, will be responsible for drafting this new treaty uh, and negotiating with uh, China and Russia, basically. So we're back to a multipolar world. Well, yeah, and we know knows. I mean, everyone says it, it's not really logical to withdraw from one treaty, which is completely, which is like basically about bilateral. Nuclear arms treaty, one of the most, uh, I mean, not one of the most, the most important treaty that we we ever had, and just it's symbol, it's it's very symbolical, and you know, this verification mechanism is also very important, and they gonna like they say, well, we abandon one nuclear treaty in order to draft another, even though you know situation with China nuclear arsenal is really different and absolutely, it's hard. I mean, no one says that. China shouldn't be a part of similar treaties. I mean, they basically should because uh, I mean they steal nuclear power, and um, people should know what China is doing in terms of their nuclear arsenal. I mean, it's 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 pretty evident, but no one says it's a it's a good decision to have a strategy of abandoning other treaties in order to draft them. But also the question is, will China want to participate in such a treaty? Yeah, I mean, they all Chinese officials announced that they 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 have no interest. They um, so they're basically saying that they they hope they're gonna save New START treaty, and China has no interest in participating in this treaty. So we have our answer. Yeah, and nothing, I mean, nothing drastic gonna happen, I guess. So. 
it's an interesting period of time because we have just the six month so a new start treaty is ex uh, expiring in late january 2021 and after that we'll uh, we will have no basically no agreements between the us and russia in in place unless they figure something out whether they figure something out this yeah. is another question <laughs> absolutely probably enough a topic for a complete episode for a podcast Yes, this is true. But let's um, discuss some other issues. Yeah. Uh, what I want to discuss is the current um, situation in the European Union and the proposed plan mm -hmm. to save the EU economy proposed by Merkel and Macron. Yeah. Um, I think it's a really a milestone in terms of the European Union because mm -hmm. it, will be, it will be the first time that the European Union uh, goes into debt. So it will mm -hmm. be that member states take up debt, mm -hmm. but the entirety of the union goes mm -hmm. into debt, which will later be repaid by the member states. Yeah, and this is a breakthrough because this will, you know, this would facilitate a common European mm -hmm. financial policy. And yeah. I think it's a really, it will be a big step towards a more federalized Europe. Yeah, I mean, this is interesting. Um, but I've seen not so many countries like really happy about this. Yeah, there are countries which openly oppose that, mm -hmm. and it's namely Austria, the Netherlands, Denmark. I think those Ooh. three are the biggest opponents. Pretty rich countries, though. Yeah, exactly. So uh, the entire idea behind mm -hmm. the plan is to save the countries of Southern Europe, namely uh, Italy, mm -hmm. Greece, and Spain. For those countries who are already hugely in debt, mm -hmm. it's just impossible to take more loans and go more in debt. Mm. This would cause an economic catastrophe. Yeah. So the idea of Merkel and Macron is to subsidize those countries through the EU. But then again, we have those rich countries who say, hey, why should we, rich countries who did well during you know, the mm. corona epidemic, why should we you know, now pay for, the, for yeah. the fact that we did great? Why should we give money to those who failed? Yeah. But um, I don't know what you think about that, but for me, it's a really short-sighted uh, view because if countries like like Greece, maybe not that much, but Italy and Spain, if they go bankrupt, mm -hmm. there are huge countries in the Eurozone. If they go bankrupt, it influences the entirety of the Union. It mm -hmm. will cause a huge crisis for the entirety of the Union. So yeah. personally, from my viewpoint, I don't see a better solution than to accept the Merkel-Macron plan. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's just interesting to analyze. It still comes down to... It's still we see these hegemonic relations because it still comes down to this Macron-Merkel relations and to this um, France-Germany alliance more than anything. Like, and you see the benefits from uh, England leaving EU because, you know, if EU was a part of the alliance, you wouldn't see this coming. Yeah, no absolutely. Way. So it's actually good for... European Union to have countries that like big countries with the big power not to be the part of the alliance because now they can concentrate on fostering cooperation. Yeah, easier areas. to cooperate, easier to get you know. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess it's also the point why some countries probably uh, I feel betrayed by kind of left uh, over just because they they feel it's all about this you know, Germany-France relations and not about them, so they didn't have a voice. Yeah, Maybe there's I, a problem, yeah. I, I know what you mean, but I think it's also important to know that Germany at first was opposed to this idea. Yeah. So first the idea of issuing, you know, the euro bonds, so like, you know, the, there will be bonds issued by the European Union. Yeah. Berlin was opposed to this idea, but now uh, you can see that, you know, Macron managed to win them over somehow. Yeah. So... I I think we could see that those two countries 
went over somehow with Cambridge mm-hmm. Interpose because let's be honest, it's also in their interest. I think maybe the plan will not survive in its current form, but there needs to be some compromise. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm being too dramatic here, because, but I think right now it comes down to if the European Union survives mm-hmm. or will it come out stronger and more unified on this crisis. I, th- I only see two outcomes. Either it gets yeah. significantly weaker or significantly stronger. Yeah, I mean, crisis, like, uh, things like COVID, they basically test systems, how firm the systems are. And, of course, for European Union, it's very important to find some common ground, especially because the European Union did not really play a significant role in tackling COVID, I mean, in terms of Europe, because it was mainly about, like, case um, case by case scenario in terms of uh, state by state scenario. Yeah, and now it's completely different. And yeah, I mean, as I said, I I just admire this cooperation between France and Germany. Something that is very rare. And now, <laughs> in yeah, history, when you when you look at history, it's really <laughs> something extraordinary that's happening. Yeah, now. but I mean, it's a good sign that they are ready to work with each other, taking into account that. Those are still pretty nationalist countries and they still pursue their own interests, but they think their own interests somehow correlate to each other's interests. So it's actually interesting to understand how those big countries um, align. And and I guess it's also good for, you know, common European army if this project is going to succeed in the future. Oh, it's a topic for a to- totally different <laughs> episode of our podcast as well. <laughs> Um, I hope I hope this phrase won't be excused. You know, we always say, "Oh, it's yeah, a topic for yeah, us." Yeah, true, true. But <laughs> we like, feels we like promise you, we're, we're not just lazy. <laughs> it's not our excuse. But yeah, uh, as I said, this is a huge turning point mm-hmm. for the EU. Yeah, and I, I personally hope that this gets approved in some form, because if it doesn't. I don't see a bright future for the union. So what's what's the approval mechanism? I, I didn't really check this. Uh, I think it would need to be ratified by the parliament. And by member states? By maybe? member states. Oh, I'm not sure as well, to be yeah. honest. I don't want to, to give any, any information. Don't quote me on anything. Yeah, it's, uh, it's probably comes down to the commission parliament and the, mm-hmm. and the council. Mm-hmm. But so far we have opposition opposition from, as I said, yeah, many member states, the British member states, pretty big. I mean, and it didn't start in with this. I mean, it didn't start with this proposal. You should understand that Netherlands. Uh, I don't know about Denmark, but Netherlands is pretty like vocal critic of any kind of common funds. Yes, yes, and they were also opposed to increasing the EU budget overall. Yeah, before the crisis, and they just don't really want to give money, which is. Some kind of hilarious because you know Netherlands is not like a very big superpower and I don't but know they are wealthy. Yeah, they're wealthy and they don't like to share and they have nationalist, pretty like right wing nationalist government. No one talks about this honestly, but it's actually interesting that to acknowledge that they have nationalists in the power. And yeah, and Austria is also like super close yeah. to electing nationalists, you know, I mean, president. So yeah, I don't know who they. I mean, do they still have this Kurz? Kurz yeah. guy. I mean, he's yeah. nationalist as well. He's pretty close to IFD, and he kind of friends. He he's a friend of some IFD guys. So I mean, you see the like direction where it's going in some European countries. But yeah, I guess the alliance between France and Germany for me it's pretty drastic step. And I hope this 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 
lines gonna continue. But see, as again, as you said, the lack of the uh, of Great Britain in the EU helps because imagine that Absolutely, now yeah. you had also Great Britain would surely oppose such a plan, yeah. and now you have you know so many big countries in the EU opposing it, and right now we have two of the greatest powers endorsing yeah. it, so. It's easier to, you know, to form compromises. Yeah, as you said, I guess, it's still, every big decision in the EU still comes down to Germany and France, even though we know, acknowledge that, you know, countries like Netherlands, they're important, but it still, it still comes down to the decision of these two superpowers. And yeah, the main thrust comes from Paris yeah. and Berlin. I mean, if they disagree with each other, then EU is not possible in terms of common European uh, framework because yes, if they oppose, it crumbles apart. The cooperation is impossible. Yeah, and I guess let's go to our last topic. Yeah, so let's discuss recent actions of China. Uh, and yeah. we'll not discuss the pandemic situation right now, rather what they're doing militarily. It's assertive Russian... Um, military actions, let's say. Yeah, nice. exactly. So what happened uh, over the course of you know few weeks is that China violated the uh, you know, mm -hmm. but it's not that's not say borders, but the disputed regions with India, yeah. and Chinese troops moved into disputed regions. India is currently responding by bringing troops over from different regions of their country. Uh, and I, I think it's very really interesting that they chose such a moment for such actions mm -hmm. when the EU is still, you know, in lockdown mm -hmm. and, you know, yeah. paralyzed. The US is probably in the worst spot in the world right now. They have huge riots mm -hmm. ravaging the country. Uh, basically, most mm -hmm. you know, Western countries being in a pretty bad spot. And now China decides to act against India, which yeah. is also a huge country with huge mm -hmm. military and nukes. And nukes. And I'm just surprised that it doesn't get too much coverage in Western media because you have yeah. two nuclear powers which basically have standoffs and nobody talks yeah. about it. I mean, they basically have uh, ongoing conflict border dispute which can turn to war. I mean, they, and they had war in the past. So yeah, in, absolutely. I mean, it can turn into war pretty quickly. And I mean, I also it's interesting that the China behaves uh, very assertively, not only in in this uh, border dispute, but also in South China Sea. Yeah, exactly. They deployed both of their carriers right right yeah. now. There's very offensive group. Yeah, them. I mean, you can see this somehow. Like Chinese reply to this anti-China, I mean, they call it propaganda, but this anti-China media agenda. Yeah, like narrative. Yeah. And this is like their reply, and they're very assertive. They're very, um, I mean, and very confident in their own capabilities because, you know, to mess with the American Navy, it's not a joke, you know. Uh, and they're pretty much uh, assertive that they can have, like, they can handle any sort of military clash with American Navy. <laughs> yeah, it's actually uh, interesting that you mentioned the American Navy because the U.S. Navy... Uh, sometime when the, you know, the corona crisis was starting and you know getting more and more serious, it, they actually U.S. Navy decreased the amount of deployments they had. Yeah. But right now, I guess China took advantage of that and became more mm -hmm. you know they became more ballsy, let's say, and uh, the U.S. Res responded to that. Mm -hmm. Right now, uh, U.S. has seven carrier groups deployed oh. over the world. Mm -hmm. Usually, it's just up to four, mm -hmm. and now we're back to seven. 
Yeah. Which is, I think, US might have realized that oh, well, maybe we gave too much ground to the Chinese, and we need to we need to you know go back to business. Yeah, yeah, and um, they kind of like pushed very hard in this uh, confrontations with the uh, and with India is one of the examples, but. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and uh, what from what I heard and what I read, so they basically try to push like to push forward their own vision of this border dispute, a Chinese vision. Uh, so they basically grab those uh, Indian territories and claim that those are Chinese territories. Yeah, and I mean, so far we see that India is kind of reluctant to uh, escalate. And I mean, it's understandable because if you are India, I mean, India is a st- basically, yeah, it's still superpower, but it's no comparison to Chinese. No. Power, yeah. In open conflict, they will be crushed. I mean, in, in military terms, they, their military is, 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 is pretty, they rely on foreign powers to yes. supply there because, you know, they have French. It's basically the mixture of French, Russian, and American military equipment. And, um, yeah, was also interesting that at the same time China is cracking down on Hong Kong and its autonomy. Yeah. Which basically, I think the Hong Kong autonomy was bound to expire in 2049, something like this. Yeah. And they basically violate all the treaties, like, whatever. Yeah. Hong Kong is China and we're going to integrate it into, into the China. You know, People's Republic of China, and they fly over Taiwan, uh, and they get very close to Taiwan, uh, like using their navy. I'm sure that Taiwan is pretty scary right now because yeah. China is being expansionist in various directions. Yeah, and the U.S. is busy with their yeah. own problems, uh, and they're and also quite overextended, as we mentioned earlier. And for China, you can think Taiwan is something similar to Crimea for Russia. You know. Sooner or later, they they need this territory because it has this significance in terms of. I mean, it's pretty close to them. It's very important strategic um, island, so to speak, and they basically wanted to be under control, or Chinese control. I think yeah, uh, and also very symbolic. If they capture Taiwan, they could say that you know China is one again, one one again. Yeah. They could say that you know the let's say communist dream in China is you know. Going forward, now we can yeah. expand, and I think this the capture of Taiwan will be the you know, main goal if they wanted to facilitate their grasp over the region. I mean, it's actually interesting. They published in some Chinese university, so some I guess students backed by Chinese government published these pictures depicting either either some military operation either in Taiwan or Hong Kong. I'm not sure, but it's actually interesting. They use this artificial intelligence to have this. Cool depiction, so for you know, basically Chinese army capturing either Taiwan or Hong Kong, which is pretty. You know, you see where it's going. You know, when when you uh, observe this, this is probably yeah intimidating. intimidating. I mean, capturing uh, Taiwan for them in terms of military strength, it's not a challenge at all. It yeah. can be done overnight. Yeah, the I think they're just waiting for the correct political situation to, in the to, world. Yeah. When, you know, Taiwan has only the backing of the U.S., basically, in the world. No European, mm. no European country recognizes Taiwan as an independent state. Only yeah. the U.S. is the backing, backing mechanism here. So I think China just waits for the right moment to take action. And militarily, only the U.S. can prevent this. Um, but uh, like with modern systems, with modern Chinese systems, uh, you know, 
uh, missile backups. It's 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 almost impossible to operate in this region without significant losses and also with S-400 that they uh, bought from Russia. It's just not possible and they understand this and yeah, it's scary. Yeah, it's... the question is, if you are the US, is it worth worth your while to defend Taiwan? Yeah. yeah, I mean, this is, I guess, a rhetorical question. I mean, the same goes to every American overseas operation, whether it's worthy to, you know, to defend Ukraine. <laughs> well, um, as we see, it's not because they, they, yeah. they're not doing it. Yeah, that's true. But this is like different because it's some clandestine operation. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. That's totally different. Yeah, different. I mean, this is uh, basically an official statement that, I mean, it's the same with Crimea. They just won this territory because they, they think it has this strategic importance, which it is, probably. For the US. Uh, for, for China. For China, it is because it's close to their territory. I mean, I mean, if you just look at the map and you see that, yeah, this this island is probably important. <laughs> yeah, then I guess if they capture Taiwan, the only you know worries they would have is Korea and Japan. Yeah, which is which is interesting because Ch- Japan is becoming more and more um, self. I mean, it 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 tries to uh, beef up their military capabilities. Yeah, even though they still have restrictions after World War Two. Yeah, according to constitution. But they're trying, and I mean, they I guess they uh, proposed this fifth-generation jet, Mitsubishi fifth-generation yeah. jet. And they are absolutely economically they're capable of having, you know, a strong yeah, industry and a strong army. It's one of the most, I mean, one of the uh, best economies in the world. Yeah, we can, history has showed us that Japan can be imperial. Yeah, I guess they're building now this. Uh, uh, I mean, it's not a carrier, but it's a kind of kind of mistral concept, like a yeah, carrier. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's 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 what Germany did after World War mm-hmm. One. They basically built, you know, battleships, but called them cruisers so yeah. to avoid the Treaty of Versailles. So it's kind of the same thing that Japan is doing, building carriers, but then yeah. like cruisers or whatever. Because so, I mean, they they probably they have a common. I mean, they have a common understanding that they couldn't rely uh, forever on American military. I think many countries are realizing this yeah. over the world right now, yeah. especially in Europe. Eastern I mean, Europe. The US has a lot of problems, so and it's losing its power and it's losing its power. It's overextended, and well, the US word doesn't really mean a lot these yeah. days. Well, okay. <laughs> I think it's very pessimistic, Anne. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry <laughs> if that's how it sounds like. Yeah. I'm still being optimistic, though. Yeah. I mean, It'll be fine. Let's prevent war. <laughs> let's prevent war. And come back to uh, military and arms control. And yeah, let's not be stupid. And yeah, let's I guess. Repeat mistakes of the past. Yeah, I guess that's it. Yes, I guess it is. Uh, sign up to our channels on YouTube, on Spotify, and on other platforms uh, platforms that you're listening to us. Visit us on Twitter. Yeah, comment and fresh news. Keep in touch and see you again. See ya.